Welcome back to the Georgia 2024 show. I'm here with my co-host, Bill Quinn. Uh, we're kind of producing on the fly today, uh, some technical issues with one of our guests, but we're going to keep moving and see what happens. We've uh, asked you for your support with our NOAD subscriptions before. Please check us out and do that. Top right corner of the Georgia Record. We're brought to you by the Georgia Record, georgiarecord.com. We uh, also need you to sign up for our podcast. If you go to Georgia Record and look at the uh, stream pod or stream article, the podcast links are there. Please sign up for our newsletters. Please put us in your daily scan. The Georgia Record is growing. We're getting inquiries from radio stations around the state to start distributing this content. And we want to welcome our audience with the War Room Posse, with Steve Bannon's group, the Denver Conservative Daily Outfit, and also the Caravan to Midnight audience. Uh, welcome to you all. So today we have Angela Stanton King. As mentioned, we're having a little technical problems. We, we may run one of her speeches instead, and we'll have her back another time once we get this worked out. We also have a treat for you today, Ali Reza Jafarzadeh from the National Council of Resistance in Iran is going to join us. The theme of the show today is resisting tyranny and how Georgians need to really start looking at life that way because tyranny is coming and we want to show you how to resist it. After we talk to the Iranian resistance about their movement, we're going to talk to Jivan Fleet, who's a survivor, literally, of the Cultural Revolution under Mao. She left after college. Uh, when Mao died, and she has some really pearl, pearls of wisdom to tell the audience. So buckle up. It's going to be a packed show. And uh, welcome, Bill. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Todd. Pleasure to be here. So uh, before we get started, I'm just going to run a, a quick ad from our sponsor, David Cross. I'm David Cross, and you may know me from my election integrity work, but I also own U.S. Asset Management, a family-owned and operated investment advisory practice. I'm a certified portfolio manager, and my job is to help you make better decisions with your money. One of the things we try to avoid is investing in companies that push the woke agenda. If you're invested with one of the big firms out there, there's a pretty good chance that you're feeding the beast that hates your values. Our company is 100% conservative, and we'd love to have an opportunity to work with you. Check us out at us-am.com and look for our big, proud American Eagle logo. Welcome back. Uh, Bill, why don't you introduce our first guest? Okay, so uh, we were in attendance at the Georgia Freedom Caucus, uh, both press conference with Colton Moore uh, earlier this month on the 7th of September. We also get a chance to hear um, uh, Angela Stanton King speak, along with Dr. Alveda King. And so, um, as you said, we're having a little bit of technical this, mor uh, this morning, but we would like to share um, Angela's speech before the uh, the group at the rally, along with some comments from Dr. Alveda King. So let's take a look. Hand it over to Angela Stanton King and Dr. King are going to hit um, hit things off for us. So welcome them. Thank you. I'm gonna just go ahead and get started say that um, it's awesome to be here today with so many like-minded people. I don't know how many of you remember me, but I also ran in the 2020 election. Yeah. I ran in the Fulton County 2020 election against John Lewis. John Lewis passed away. Nakima Williams was a writing candidate for John Lewis. And I don't feel that 
I had a fair run. I hopefully I won't get indicted for saying that. Maybe, maybe I might have a chance because I'm black. You know, if you're a black woman and say the election was stolen like Stacey Abrams, then you don't get an indictment. But if you're a black woman as a Republican and support Trump, you just might. And I'm gonna tell the truth. There are several reasons why I don't believe that I had a fair shot. Now, I know Atlanta is strictly Democrat and has been for quite some time. So I'm not saying that I won, but I don't believe that it was fair by all means. And I say that for many reasons. And while there are some senators out here listening and people in Congress, it's very important to understand, and those of us. I ran against someone who refused to debate, turned down 11 debates. As a community, how are we voting for somebody that won't even debate their opponent? Well, if you won't show me that you're willing to speak for me or stand up for me against the person you're running against, then how can I believe that you'll stand up for me in Congress? Another thing is, on that day, you know there was a water main break in Fulton County. I don't know how it happened. And it just so happened to be in the only room that counted the ballots. And so I, someone who is a lifelong resident of this great city and town, grew up probably a couple of blocks over here. They call it Summerhill, People's Town, University and Pryor. We could walk there from here. I've done a lot of work in this community. I've been very active in this community for the past 20 years working alongside my godmother. I've worked in the schools, I've worked in the prisons, I've worked in the detention centers, I've worked at the community centers, I've worked with the churches. I've done my part, I've held book camps at elementary schools, my name is well known, I've been in entertainment. So I couldn't understand how someone who was a writing candidate, who wasn't even from Atlanta, but was from Alabama, who refused to debate, managed to get more votes than John Lewis ever got in the history of his career. The machine! The machine! Now, you may have gotten more votes than me, but I seriously doubt you got more votes than John Lewis. Hopefully, they won't send me to jail for making that statement. Here's another thing, right? In our community, when we talk about who are we going to elect, who are we going to stand behind, because right now we see so much infighting where people believe we have to choose a party or we have to choose a color. No, you have to select the person that you have seen and witnessed doing the work in the community. These people that just hop out of the clear blue sky that haven't put any work in, in the community, how can you trust them to really be a voice for you? Why are we overlooking the people in the community that are showing us that they're willing to do the work without ever receiving a dime from Congress? Another question I would pose to off of me. I'll take that. But what has she done for the community of Fulton County, Georgia since she's been in office? She showed up to speak for abortion when Roe v. Wade was being overturned. But I opened a pregnancy home for women right here in her district and she hadn't showed up for that. Auntie Angie's house. So they show up when it's time for us to abort our babies. But they don't show up when it's time for us to give life. When it comes to President Donald Trump, I want to say this because a lot of people accuse this man of being a racist. 
And I just want to say that I met President Donald Trump working on criminal justice reform. I, too, was one of the ones that said, no, I don't want to go talk to that man. I don't know him. He, he hates black people. Well, that's what they said. And so they said, well, Angela, he's working on criminal justice reform. You have a story. Many of you may or may not know that I served time in a Georgia state prison. And while I was serving time in that prison, I was pregnant. And when it was time for me to deliver my baby, I was transported to a hospital here in Georgia by a police officer and I was chained to a bed and I was forced to give birth to my baby with a sheriff watching for a nonviolent crime. Also separated from my family for a nonviolent crime. But you know the Democrats say we only supposed to fight for the family separation at the border. They forgot all about the family separation in the border. They want Trump to apologize for the CP5, but they ain't demanding that Joe Biden apologize for the 94 crime bill. But that's something else. They told me that this man was a racist, but I had a story, and I knew that if I could use my story to convince this man that there was a need to reform our criminal justice system, then I would do that. Yeah. I wasn't going to be worried about emotions. I wasn't going to be worried about the media. I wasn't going to worry about the naysayers. I was going to go in with my story and see if I could make a difference. I found myself sitting in front of President Trump in the Oval Office and I shared my story. This is the man that they told me was a racist. I don't know. I'm scared to death. Is he going to hang me? I don't know. Is he going to call the KKK the way that the media has portrayed it? I'm in a danger zone. Just so happened that he heard my story. Not only did he pass the First Step Act, but he also made it illegal for them to chain women to the bed during their childhood. Thank you. This white man that they told me was a racist. They told me he hated black people. So not only did he just sign one of the most historic forms of criminal justice reform legislation to ever hit this nation, overturning the 94 crime bill that massively incarcerated black America, freeing nearly 20,000 people to this day. The First Step Act, I sat in the Oval Office with a lot of criminal justice reform advocates. I saw Kim Kardashian on the front page taking her pictures. I saw Alice Johnson. I saw Louis uh, Lewis Reed. I saw Van Jones. I saw Jessica Jackson. I saw, uh, what's her name, Vivica Fox. I saw Isaiah Washington. But I don't see any of them here today. A lot of people want to take a lot of credit for being criminal justice reform experts, criminal justice reform advocates, but to tell the truth, you didn't free nobody. Trump did. Yeah. Kim Kardashian had the nerve to put up a tweet to say free Gunna. Gunna is a YSL rapper tied to the Young Thug case, charged with Rico. The same DA, the same charges. You put up a tweet and say free a known gangster in Atlanta, Georgia, but you won't put up a tweet and say free President Trump. for freeing anybody is because President Donald J. Trump signed the papers. As a criminal justice reform advocate, somebody that's grateful 
to President Donald Trump for giving me a second chance, giving me an opportunity to run for Congress by clearing my record. Somebody who was completely oblivious to the corruption that happens in Atlanta, Georgia. I just wanted to do something for my community. I refuse to be silent. Not only will I stand for Atlanta, Georgia, not only will I stand for America, not only will I stand for the babies being aborted in the womb, not only will I stand for the mothers that choose life, I'm also going to stand with President Donald Trump. Yeah. Thank you! Right. Truth is stronger than boo. Yeah. So there's something that says, hold your peace. And it's hard. Because sometimes I just have to say it. One time, my pastor who passed away, his son is my pastor, now they good. I said, I just need to give him a piece of my mind. He said, don't you need to keep all your mind? Can you afford to give away a piece of it? So when I said, I didn't say be nice. Because you could be nice, nice, nasty. That's real. <laughs> but be kind. Sometimes it's kind to get people to go ahead and pay for the consequences and go to jail. And you pray somebody comes into jail and, and gives them Jesus. Yeah. That's yeah. actually kind. That's not mean. So when I say be kind, hold your peace. So that when God equips the senator or Angela or any of us, the kind committee that invited us here today so that truth can be told. So just try to do that. Like I say, I try to be kind, sometimes I miss it too. Now, we gonna do this and I'm done. I usually tell people, hold hands, it's too hot out here. You can give your neighbor a fist bump if you're going to, go ahead and do that. Let's do one round of this little light of mine and let's do what's right. Justice and righteousness. One little round and I'm through. This little light of mine, ain't it? I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. Mean it from your heart. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. Pray for President Trump, America, yourself. It was something of, a, of an amazing day, as you can tell from uh, from their comments. If I could characterize the the feeling, there was a there was a broad cross section of folks that attended the press conference, mm -hmm. and one of the things that you notice if you think past just the, the exact people that are attending. This is a fight for everybody. This is not a fight for one group or in one community or another community. This is a fight for all communities. And um, I found it fascinating, you know, um, 
Angela, Angela Stanton King, uh, Dr. Alveda King, um, uh, other groups, uh, Blacks for Trump were there in, in force. Um, another number of folks from the Asian community and folks from all over Atlanta. What was most notable was, again, the cross-section. But then you think, who's missing? Well, from uh, the GOP, we had Brian K. Pritchard, first vice chair. We had David Cross, second vice chair. We had uh, some folks from various leadership positions in the GOP in uh, some counties around. Jim Tully was there. Um, and a gentleman from DeKalb and, and some others. But what about the people that weren't there? And I will tell you, I listening to um, Angela, Ms. King's remarks, I trust her remarks, I trust her feedback a lot more than I'm trusting the folks that didn't even take the time to show up. So when you, when you, look, at, when you look at what's going on with uh, Colton Moore, um, with uh, Charlie Spurred, um, with others that are speaking out. Look, take a minute and remember, for every person that's there, where in the heck are the people that aren't there? And trust the people that are telling you what, what they believe, what they feel. And uh, I give everybody that was in attendance, uh, uh, Mallory Staples, who put the thing together along with the Georgia Freedom Caucus, I give them credit. And I say, shame on you to the folks that couldn't be, couldn't be there simply because of disinterest or some level of fear or uh, ambivalence. So yeah, well put, Bill. So while we're waiting on our next guest, as we're producing on the fly here, I want to talk about uh, health. Um, we have an article up on the Georgia Record right now, which one of our staff just put up about. It's from the EPA that uh, a lot of bad chemicals are found across Georgia. Um, you know, take that with a grain of salt, but health is a, because it's from the EPA, so you, you have to always wonder if they're telling the truth these days, as with all federal agencies. But um, the issue of health is real. Uh, the issue of food security and water security is real. And you can protect your family because, as we've said before, we think the next big one is coming. Look at all the masks they're putting on kids Look at the vaccines. You know, I think in New York, the healthcare establishment just required all workers to vax up with the new vax that they've tested on 20 mice. So if you think that's safe and effective, then uh, then go for it. But uh, we think you should protect your family. One way you can do that is go to the wellness company to twc.health forward slash CDM and check out their emergency wellness kit. As the people in Maui found out or East Palestine or other areas of crises in the US. It's really good to have medications on hand if you can't get to the pharmacy. So once it happens, it's too late. So check out their emergency medical kit. It includes a plethora of medications that will be able to protect your family from tick bites, from COVID, from bioweapons like bubonic plague, or the black plague, or whatever they decide to release. So if you use promo code CDM, you get a 10% discount. So that's twc.health forward slash CDM and protect your family. This kit will protect one adult. So choose wisely as to how many you think you should get. And Bill, uh, what else is going on in Georgia that you want our, we'll kind of switch around, do our discussion now. Um, well, we, uh, in our, in the last um, Wednesday segment, we talked about some of the uh, kerfuffle with the election board going on in Forsyth that continues. 
Uh, there's an article up on uh, the Georgia record talking about uh, sort of a bizarre circumstance. One of the commissioners decided to speak out about, gosh, now we want to be transparent and we're going to release documents and so forth. Haven't seen those come out yet, but from what I understand, um, others in the county have been getting their eyes on this. The local, uh, uh, the local publication, uh, Forsyth County News, has begun covering it. And I think there are already two articles in and it's it's getting, you know, it's getting a life of its own. You know, these things have a funny way of, uh, you know, bubbling to the surface. People are getting darn good at hearing truth um, when they do. And so now that this is, you know, you can see folks kind of like, very frankly, you mentioned Maui, kind of like what they were doing in Maui. Oh, gosh, don't listen to social media. Don't listen to this one. Listen to what we're telling you. And people are kind of go- calling BS and they're saying, no, I want to see the documents. I want to understand what's happened here. So we expect that that will uh, bubble its way up um, again over the coming uh, days and certainly weeks. Um, and, uh, you know, there's there's some nefarious doings from what we understand in a number of counties. There's this uh, dynamic where uh, folks that, uh, as, as an example, in uh, in Milton, where yes. they uh, they made the decision to take on uh, paper ballots versus allowing Fulton to run their elections for them. Uh, they uh, found out through study that they could, one, uh, do just as good a job, make sure that their elections were um, uncontestable and, and provable and auditable, um, and save money in the process. Um, now there seems to be some folks bubbling up saying, oh, no, that's that may not be true. Well, we're wondering which side of that is is true. And um, we uh, we are digging into it now and expect to bring forward some information in the coming week as to, you know, who's saying this, who's doing what, uh, why are they doing it, who's involved. And uh, if it plays out as it has in other counties, we expect that we will see some connections between people, between organizations um, that may be surprising and uh, may bring forward a better understanding of just what in the heck is driving this. This seemed very clear uh, when the vote was taken to move to paper ballots. It seemed to be well supported, had a lot of support from the city council and so forth. All of a sudden now you see this pushback and we're wondering who the heck is pushing back and why, you know, who, who uh, who likes to argue against something that's provable and auditable for a change? Isn't yeah. that what everybody's been asking for for you know the last oh, going on three years? So uh, it's, more it's coming very, on that. It's very easy to spot what's going on now just by you can't listen to what people say. I've said for years now you have to watch what they do and what that's the consequences exactly right. of their actions are, and uh, it's very easy to spot those on the wrong side. Uh, speaking of that, we had a fascinating interview, and we're waiting on uh, the representative from the National Council of the Resistance of Iran to come on any minute now. But um, we had a fascinating show, um, the Globalist in Plain Sight show that Christine Dolan runs at 1230. So if you get a chance, check that out. The first 40 minutes about the Kennedy assassination and what went on behind that is literally fascinating. You know, I I used to think it was a crazy idea that the CIA killed Kennedy until about three years ago after the Trump election in 2020. And then everything became very clear. So I would encourage you to watch Mark Groton in the interview with Christine Dolan um, on the Globalist in Plain Sight show. You can find that on CDM.press, on the podcasts uh, for CDM or 
uh, on the Rumble channels, our CDM. And by the way, everybody, please sign up for our Rumble channel if you could. We need to grow the audience. Uh, the Georgia show is growing, but we need to uh, step on the gas and get it bigger because the information we're putting out, no one else is doing. So uh, there you go. Anything I else, think, Bill? Yeah, I think uh, you mentioned the Rumble channel. Yeah. I, I'm not sure folks know all the different uh, shows that uh, that you and the team are are producing for the Rumble channel. It might might make sense for a moment to share a bit of that. It's uh, There's a broad range of topics covered, and I don't think everybody knows about those. Yeah, if you go to our CDM Rumble channel, uh, we are on our way, baby steps every day, getting to a full-service network offering. Probably, we, you know, we may go on some of the uh, Hulu, you know, that kind of thing eventually, but we're definitely going to be streaming on Rumble and other channels. We have this show, which Wednesdays and Sundays, we have information operation, which is my show telling people how the PSYOP is being done uh, against Americans. We have Christine Dolan, the globalist in plain sight. We have a really interesting show that people love called Eurobytes, which is my conversation with several Germans and Austrians, which uh, people really love getting a view of what's going on over there. And, uh, we also stream Caravan to Midnight show, Conservative Daily shows, Brian BKP, Brian K. Pritchard is on there daily. So you can really get a, a full range of topics and uh, information from the CDM Rumble channel. So I'd encourage everybody to check that out. So, wow, I don't know if our, we may go to the tape for, go ahead, Bill, you're going to say something? There we go. I'm back online. I was going to say, if you uh, we happen to have the uh, those first few minutes of the globalists um, in queue, so if you wanted to show a bit of that to give people a sense, we we could do that. You have it ready to go. Uh, I will now, or and I do. Yes. <laughs> go ahead. Ask and ye shall receive. Excellent. Uh, let's see, uh, make sure we've got sound on. And on Friday night, uh, two guys showed up at an event for Bobby Kennedy. And one guy was armed to the T and he had a backpack and there were knives and uh, at least one other pistol that was uh, in his backpack. Although he was harboring, he was brandishing one and brandishing a U.S. Marshal's badge. So it's fortuitous that we have you on today because you have done a lot of research on the Kennedy assassinations in the past, Bobby and Jack Kennedy's assassination. But let's talk about the security issue because Bobby has, uh, in the campaign, have asked the Biden administration for Secret Service protection at least twice this year. Now they're going to do it a third time. What's your feelings about this? Because, you know, when you take a look at the historical significance of the assassinations and, and the fact that Bobby has the last name of Kennedy, how serious is this? Oh, this is life and death serious. There's, I mean, this is no joke at all. I mean, and the Biden administration's refusal to grant him Secret Service protection is despicable. I mean, it is just another sign of just how dirty they are. I mean, in this case, I mean, and the state of our politics in the Democratic Party today, I mean, the people on the inside would, you know, like to see 
Robert Kennedy Jr. go away however he, you know, they can get rid of him. And I think that includes, you know, any and all means they consider acceptable. You had spent last week in D.C. was the um, DNC meeting and where they're talking about what's going to happen at the, you know, in Iowa, New Hampshire, Georgia for the primaries and the caucus in Iowa. You know, I've been covering politics now for, you know, four decades, and I have never, ever uh, heard anything about having a caucus, having a primary, and then rewriting the rules so that the the winner of the primaries of the caucus doesn't get their delegates. You were in the room last week in D.C. What was that all about? Well, I mean, you see the Democratic Party is getting more and more corrupt. And the, you know, the, the average American, the average Democratic voter doesn't like the corruption. They don't like that the Democratic Party is sold out to every interest, whether it's the military industrial complex or big pharma or big oil, whatever it is, the Democratic Party has stopped representing the people and now represents these, you know, corrupt interests. And that's not a good strategy if you're looking to win a popular election. So they resort to all sorts of tricks, whether it's super delegates or not counting votes in certain primaries or whatever it takes. And they're trying to prop up Joe Biden, who is very weak, and Joe Biden did poorly in New Hampshire and Iowa, so they're trying to not have those votes count. I mean, that's what the Demo the insiders at the Democratic Party are about, and that's what we're fighting against. Well, Joe Biden's never done well in Iowa, even when he ran back in the 1980s and 1990s. He's, he's never he, he never got out of the gate in Iowa. In, in 1988, when he dropped out of the race, it took about four days. <laughs> when Maureen Dowd accused him of plagiarism for mechanic speech, which he did. He had mentioned McKinnick's name in the past and given him credit. But then, you know, he got into a riff with somebody and started accusing the guy of not having an IQ. And he and he graduated at the top of his class at Syracuse Law School, which was not true. And bada boom, he was out of the race. But, you know, the, the, the nastiness of Biden has been out there for a while. But I don't think I've ever seen it. And we've also had, you know, internal Democratic fights going on, state, the national versus the state parties rules. But this is different. This is very different this time in terms of basically canceling voters' casting of their votes. And people seem to be going along with it. So what, is, what does this tell you at this point in time? Because you're, you're involved with the campaign. You were the interim chair over at the campaign. And then you, Dennis Kucinich came in. And then now you're back over at the American Values 2024's co-chair. What are you seeing out there um, when, when you are going to these meetings? Well, I mean, the fascinating, it's, the, I, so I sat in on the meeting, which was incredibly boring. I mean, they're talking about, you know, so much minutia of how the primaries are conducted. And again, to some extent, they're able to, you know, by being willing to pay attention to these extremely small details and manipulate those, you know, tiny things that almost no one would bother to pay attention to, they're able to manipulate the system. So it really, I was sitting there thinking like, this is the banality of evil. 
Like here they are trying to. Good, good, good uh, call on putting a piece of that up, Bill, because that, that's very powerful interview. Seriously. That, it is. I mean, and that's just a teaser. I mean, there's a lot to that. So it gives a good example of, you know, Globalist yeah. in Plain Sight is a uh, is a wonderful show. And uh, you and Christine do a great job with it. Okay, so I'm going to bring in our good friend Ali Reza Jafar today. Thank you, uh, Ali Reza. Good to see you again. Thank you so much, Todd. Um, always great to be with you. And um, I want to say hi to Bill as well. Hello, uh, Ali Reza. Great to meet Very you pleasure. pleasure to meet you, sir. So uh, I wanted to have you on because in Georgia and across the U.S., it's a soft tyranny that is starting to dawn over the, over the public. I wanted you to talk about your history of your movement. Uh, I want you to go into the 10-point plan and what you want to bring to, a, to Iran. But also, uh, why don't people know about the MEK and the, the National Council of Resistance in Iran? Good. Uh, sure, definitely. Thank you so much, uh, Todd and, and Bill. Um, actually, I'm right now in New York, as you can tell, um, because we are getting ready for... Um, a big rally in front of the um, United Nations on Tuesday, September 19th, uh, that, um, uh, you know, the Iran regime's uh, president, Ibrahim Raisi, is coming to town. And instead of him being put on trial uh, before international tribunals for the crimes against humanity, um, he's going to be given a, a forum at the United Nations, and, and certainly he would use this opportunity, as he has done before, to spew hate and to promote the Iran regime as a defender of human rights and, and uh, call the rest of the world as terrorists and the, and the bad guys. So there's going to be uh, several thousand Iranian-Americans coming from all over the United States, from California to Georgia to Texas to Illinois to everywhere um, to uh, say that this regime um, has no legitimacy, must be uh, uh, brought down by the people of Iran. Uh, but what the world needs to do is not to give legitimacy to this regime. Uh, that's all they really need to do. The rest is our responsibility and our job to bring down the, uh, the Ayatollahs. And, and I think this uh, actually is a, is a segue to the question you posed mm -hmm. because you know, we are facing um, a regime that is most brutal in any way you want to look at it. Um, it's a religious theocracy, unlike, you know, regular dictatorships. That's a lot easier to deal with them than this one. Um, but it employs terrorism as a tool of uh, statecraft. That's how they pursue their foreign policy, uh, hostage taking and... Um, that's the language that they speak and they try to frighten the rest of the world that if you either, you know, follow our rules and uh, give us what we want or else we're going to wage terror against your capitals, against your citizens. We take them hostage and then you will have to pay us like huge sums of money to get them released. That's, you know, the environment that we're operating in. I mean, if we were only us and the Iran regime, I think long ago, the people had uh, settled their scores uh, with this repressive regime. But now this is a regime that uses uh, terrorism uh, as a tool and they're developing nuclear weapons and all of that. So we have another challenge. 
and that's the Western um, powers, the Western countries, uh, to uh, convince them that what you are doing is not only harmful to the people of Iran, but is also harmful to your own countries because you are going to be living with, um, with the terrorism of the Iran regime as though this is a permanent feature of, of this regime. So that's the challenge. And, and that's why uh, a lot of people don't know as much as they should um, uh, about Iran and and the players regarding Iran. Of course, everyone knows about Iran. You know, you hear in the news that they're developing nuclear weapons. They have terrorism. They have human rights violations and all of that. But very little is said uh, about the people of Iran and what they actually want, what they stand for, and the very powerful voice that exists out there, both in terms of ideals uh, but also in terms of their capabilities, the, you know, both the capability and the will uh, to bring about change in Iran. And the reason that you don't hear about it, because one of the main demands that the regime asks all the time from everybody, whether it's the United States or other European nations, is that, you know, we want you, if, if, if you want to play ball with us, we want you to describe our opposition uh, those who are fighting for freedom in Iran, we want you to sort of describe them as terrorists, as human rights violators, as bad guys, and then describe the Iran regime as like moderates or those pragmatists and those who can deal with. That was the challenge we have been facing. Um, um, you know, your audience may not know, and maybe they do know, that um, a few years ago, the U.S. government designated our movement on the, on the U.S. Uh, uh, terrorist list, on the State Department terrorist list. Why it happened? That was 1997, because the Iranian regime made that demand. And they wanted to reach out and mend relations with, uh, with Iran, uh, that supposedly a new moderate president had been um, in office. That's how the, you know, they deal with it. Of course, we had to fight it. We had to go through court. We spent a lot of time and resources and energy and money uh, after 15 years, we got that unjust designation removed. But that's the kind of challenge that we are, we're, we're facing. And that was removed by a federal judge who said this is ridiculous, essentially. Yes, the, you know, the yeah. judge said that unless the State Department can come, because whatever evidence they presented was just was rubbish. So mm -hmm. they say you either come up with new evidence, which they didn't have, or the court is going to right away um, overturn the designation. It just left no other choice um, to the State Department at the time uh, to vacate the designation because then th that way they would have had to um, get the, uh, the the court results. It was very embarrassing for them. Uh, mm -hmm. So the, the, the less embarrassing choice was to just remove the designation which they had unjustly put on the movement. But also, also I think um, it tells you, Todd, about the really the power and the value of a, a nation, no matter how tough the challenges are and how much the odds are against you, how much you can actually accomplish if you believe in yourself, if you work hard, if you organize, if you, uh, you know, are willing to pay the price because, you know, nothing is free, uh, especially freedom is not free. You have to be able to pay the price for it. We, we did. Our, our people have done it. And that's why we have done a lot of major achievements uh, so far. Even though the mullahs are still in power, we still have one, one more job left. That's to bring down the ayatollahs. We've, we've come a long way. Major so tell, achievements. tell the audience how many have been executed by the regime of your movement. 
Well, you know, since um, 1981, <clears throat> that, um, uh, you know, the Ayatollahs came to power in 1979 uh, throughout the course of a, actually a genuine revolution. It was a, a, a popular revolution by the people who wanted to reject the monarchical dictatorship of the Shah, who had the notorious mm -hmm. secret police, Savak. And then he had the single party rule that he said, there's only one party, that's my party. Or uh, you either join the party or go to jail or leave the country. That's how arrogant the Shah was. And, and people, of course, didn't like it, intellectuals and others. So uh, there was a revolution in 1979, a genuine one. But the Ayatollahs, who were basically playing no role whatsoever during the course of revolution, and the uh, uh, the senior cleric at the time, Ruhollah um, Khomeini, uh, who was basically sitting in idle in Iraq, in Najaf, only four months before the success of the revolution, he jumped over the bandwagon, went from Iraq to Paris near the suburb of Paris, Nofalo Chateau, stole all the attention from the media, and then, um, you know, and, and jumped and, and stole the leadership of the revolution and moved it, derailed it, um, towards exactly the wrong direction. And that's why uh, in less than two years, a new repression was installed in Iran. This time it was theocracy, the rule of the clerics who said, we get our authority from God. So if you stop, you oppose us, we are opposing God. So we issue that death decree. And they justified all of that. And that's why our movement where, you know, is primarily a Muslim movement because 90 plus percent of the population in Iran are Muslims. Um, but they're vehemently opposed to the theocratic Islamic extremist mentality of the Ayatollahs. So, so they stood up and, and, um, uh, and said no to the Ayatollahs. And the regime waged a, a huge terror attack, arresting their members and supporters. And uh, since June of 1981, which was the last day that you could have any kind of peaceful activities uh, in Iran until today, over 120,000 uh, members and supporters of this movement have been executed by the Iran regime, um, including many women. Uh, just to give you one example, in summer of 1988, um, when a lot of these um, members of this movement, the Bojahid and Khal or the MEK, which is the main force that also fought the Shah, uh, the dictatorship of the Shah at the time, um, that um, in summer of 1988, um, the Khomeini, who was the predecessor to the current supreme leader, uh, Ali Khamenei, Ruhollah Khomeini issued a, a, a fatwa, a religious decree, uh, saying that anyone who is in any way associated with the MEK movement must be executed. It doesn't matter what he or she has or hadn't done. Um, so they appointed a four-member, uh, what is now known as the Death Commission, and the job of this death commission was to interview every single political prison in Iran, whether it was in Tehran or other cities, and ask one, one question, what's your position about the MEK? Um, if they were still loyal to the MEK, no other questions asked, they would send them to a different direction down the hall, there were gallows to be hanged. And uh, one of the members of that four-member death commission was the current president of the Iran regime, Ibrahim Raisi. Uh, he was much younger at the time, but he was the shrewdest person on that uh, death panel. And as many as 30,000 people, um, most of them MEK members, 
were executed in a matter of weeks in summer of 1988. Of course, everything was done in secret. No one knew about it. Uh, we got some information, early stages of it. We made it public, but there was not enough evidence. No one really was interested to really follow it up until a few months later, the number two person within the regime itself, the successor designated to Khomeini, he found out and he, you know, he raised his voice. And then um, uh, until really the, the full picture came out in 2017, that lots of evidence uh, came from within the regime that showed the scope and the scale of the, of the killings. It was undisputed at the time. And then investigation started by the United Nations, the very same place that uh, Reis is going to come to speak. Um, uh, and, and uh, you know, Amnesty International, all kinds of human rights organizations, the U.S. government, everybody talked about it and, and you know, about the killings. So that's the price. You know, there is a very thick book. Um, I don't have it with me here in New York of the names and particulars. We have compiled the names and pictures of 20,000 of those who were executed by the regime of our, our members. Um, so it's, um, it's, a, it's a huge price paid. But also that becomes like an asset uh, for you. So you know, tell us about that, because this history, yet you still have 16-year-old girls knowing they're basically going to their death, coming out and protesting today. A lot of them. The youth in Iran, they have no future. It's an oligarchy. They have no economic future. So they are protesting knowing that they're going to be killed. Am I wrong? You're absolutely correct, and, and I think that's a very important point you raised, Todd, because, uh, you know, perhaps the Ayatollahs calculated with themselves that if we can kill all of these MEK people, including the young ones, because as, as young as 13-year-olds were killed in the 1980s, uh, then we basically exterminate them, then, then we're, we're going to be fine. Well, I don't think they realized that, you know, the more they killed, they actually... Uh, created a culture of um, of crime against humanity on one side for the regime to just follow that path. But those who said no and stood up against the regime, even though they lost their lives, they paid the price for creating a culture of resistance. Um, and that became the backbone of what you see now in the streets of Tehran and other places. Most of the people you see in the streets of Iran were not even born at the time of the rule of Khomeini or in 1988 when the massacre took place, but they all know about it. Many of them are actually the sons and daughters or the grandchildren of those who were executed at the time. And especially now in the era of social media, uh, they start you know, digging in and trying to know about this. And, and this has become a major, major issue in Iran, even though if you talk about the MEK, that's banned, you, you could lose your life to even get on the internet and try to search for them. Um, but it's so powerful that, you know, a, a huge part of the younger generation has now gotten involved. So I say that what you see in the streets of Tehran or other cities, the young people, this is the continuation or as a result of the price that was paid, you know, since 40 years ago until today. So you can see the continuity. And that's why we're so hopeful that um, nothing the regime can do that 
could actually eliminate this, could destroy uh, this movement. Uh, to the contrary, the, the mullahs are just digging their own grave um, by, you know, by killing very young people. We have to move on to our next guest, and thank you for that. Um, I, people don't know about the MEK or the NCRI. Tell us about your 10-point plan in general, what you want to bring to Iran uh, as we close. Yes, you know, um, there is a very um, interesting, um, inspiring prospect for change in Iran because uh, we are exactly the opposite of the Ayatollahs in every way you look at it. Um, you know, a few years ago, back in 2006, um, our leader, which is actually a woman, Mrs. Mariam Rajavi, uh, women play a, a significant role in our movement. Um, the last nine secretaries general of the MEK since 30 plus years ago have all been women. They play significant role in leadership in everywhere. And uh, she introduced a 10-point plan for the future of Iran that says the um, only sole criteria for legitimacy is actually the vote of the people. You know, you don't get your legitimacy from God or anything like that. Uh, separation of religion and state, freedom of press, freedom of political parties, freedom of expression, freedom of religion, um, uh, and also gender equality um, and all uh, the uh, uh, free market economy, as opposed to how they, the state uh, controls the entire economy in Iran right now. Supporting peace in the Middle East, you know, a two-state solution, as opposed to the Ayatollah, who say push the Jews to the sea, and then um, uh, universal declaration of human rights and a non-nuclear uh, republic Iran, um, and banning, you know, all of those atrocities of the Iran regime. That ten-point plan has become the focal point of like the agenda, and it's gotten tremendous uh, support all over the world. In the United States Congress, in the current Congress right now, there is a resolution HRS 100 that you know makes uh, supportively uh, a reference to uh, the 10-point plan of Mrs. Rajiv. It has just bipartisan support of 240 uh, House members. That's House majority. Uh, same situation in different parliaments in Europe. 3,600 parliamentarians from uh, over 40 countries around the world have actually uh, endorsed a 10-point plan. And there's no one can actually argue against any of those, the, you know, those principles. That's important because, you know, you have to know where you're heading. You have to know how different and why you're different than the Ayatollahs and how you want to get to where you want to go. And that's why this movement has gained a lot of appeal, a lot of uh, support um, all over the world, but also inside the country. And that's why we are very confident that we will win because we have already paid the price for it and we're, we're willing to pay the rest of the prices needed. And we're, we're, we're everywhere. Every time there, there is a forum anywhere, we're there. We're here right now in New York to, to protest against Raisi and to support Mrs. Rajavi's 10-point uh, plan. And, you know, we're getting a lot of bipartisan uh, speakers on our side and that's the path forward. And, and I think what you're doing, Todd, uh, with your show is very important because you are trying to inform the public opinion to share with them the information that they may otherwise not have it and and to get them involved because i think every single american citizen no matter where you are which state uh, where you're lined up politically you can play a big role you you have your voice you have your votes you can yep. speak to your members of congress and you know inform everybody, write about it, get on social media and all of that. And that's why I really appreciate what you're doing. And I appreciate the opportunity today um, in speaking on your show. 
If I could make a comment, I know you're you're moving toward close, Todd, but one of the things that strikes me as you go through the 10 points is, are those any different than many people in our country, many people in any country would wish for their, for their citizens? And so um, having been one of the folks that perhaps in, in earlier years did not understand um, the full scope of uh, the dynamic in, in Iran, now that uh, that's becoming more well-known, I think people will understand there's a lot of commonality between what we want and what others want, uh, not just in your country, but, but in others around the world. So well done and thank you. And thank, thank you, you well said, by the way, Bill, because, you know, uh, General James Jones, the first national security advisor to President Obama, um, he said, he described the uh, temple plan as a Jeffersonian plan. Um, yeah. So both Republicans and Democrats look at it that way, you know, the same things that the founding fathers in this country fought for and many other countries around the world. So I appreciate noting that um, and but also appreciate the opportunity being here today. So we'll have you back as the uh, revolution progresses in Iran and the demonstrations proceed. So thank you very much, Ali Reza. Thank you so much, Todd, and thank you, Bill. Appreciate sure. it. Can you pull him out, Bill? Yes, just a moment. Okay. There we go. Thank you. So uh, as mentioned on the last show, I've, I've had a, I was able to, uh, spend a lot of time with the uh, the MEK at their head, at their camp in Albania after the remnants of the army that uh, Obama essentially allowed to be massacred once we disarmed them after the Iraq War. Uh, I spent about a week, several weeks there over different trips, and then I spent a week with them in Paris at their headquarters. Saw their massive satellite operation where they're beaming in like Radio Free Europe into Iran the message of freedom and the rest message of free markets and uh, to get rid of terror and really hope for the future. These young kids in Iran have no hope. And that's why these 16 year old girls are going out and protesting and then they put them in cages and let them rot literally. So it's horrific what the regime is doing. So uh, if you want to learn more, I just released a book called paying the price, the untold story of the Iranian resistance. It's, it's testimony from people who survived the executions. It goes through the entire history of the NCRI and the MEK, and uh, I think you'll find it fascinating. It's available in History of Books. You can get signed copies at ltodwood.com, or you can buy it online anywhere. So uh, please support CDM by, uh, by getting the book. Thank you. So before we move on to our last guest, uh, we talked a lot about food security. Please go to food, familyfarmbeefbox.com. That's familyfarmbeefbox.com and get non-mRNA beef, excellent taste. They only slaughter 15 cows a week versus 5,000 a day at the big industrial slaughterhouses. They take their time. The cuts are fantastic. The taste is fantastic. It's dry aged. It's traditional butchering. It's not, you know, machine butchering. And it's great Nebraska beef. I just did an interview with uh, Glade Miller-Smith, the gentleman there. It's on information operation on cdm.press. Uh, talking about the value of homesteading and the original homesteaders. We're going to do a series with him, but please go to familyfarmbeefbox.com and be one of his subscribers and feed your family with beef you can trust. So with that, Bill, I spent some time with She Van Fleet. I think you'll find this interview fascinating for our audience. She survived the Cultural Revolution and what she is seeing happening in America today, the same words, the same tactics, is fascinating. So go ahead and 
a really yep, special yep. person with us today, Jean Van Fleet. We have Here we go. done an event with her. We've interviewed her in the past, and we wanted to talk to her again. Welcome to the show, Sheep. Well, thank you for uh, having me. So you are a survivor. You left of the Cultural Revolution during uh, Mao Zedong's time period in China. You left as a child. Um, give us a quick overview of your background and, and why you're speaking out today. Yeah, actually, I left a full adult. I spent my oh, first... Okay. 26 years uh, in Mao's China, and 10 of those years were my school years. That was wow. the entirety of the Cultural Revolution. Wow. So, yeah, when that. it started, I was in my first grade, and uh, after I graduated from, uh, from high school, I was sent to the countryside to be re-educated by so the when, peasants. So when we say you're a survivor, you really are a survivor. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, the reason I was able to come out is because Mao died. Mm. When Mao died, that was uh, the end of the Cultural Revolution. Mm -hmm. And then uh, the next leader, um, Deng Xiaoping, decided to have reform and mm -hmm. basically economic reform and open mm -hmm. up China, open up university. That's when I could go to university and study English. And in 1986, I was able to come to America. Wow. And, um, yeah, so that's my story. And I had absolutely... Uh, experienced the um, the uh, most, the, I would say, the most brutal communist regime in the world. Wow. So tell us about that. What kind of tactics did you see during that time period? Um, it, actually, it's not just cultural revolution, but cultural mm -hmm. revolution was one of the uh, worst time period mm -hmm. in Mao's China. And so, but everything used was already developed and during the, mm -hmm. uh, the 17 years leading to the Cultural Revolution. And mm -hmm. one of the things is identity politics. Mm -hmm. Many people actually, many um, like uh, James Lindsay, um, and we, uh, a lot of people start to, to call the kind of uh, cultural Marxism that uh, uh, in America, Mao is. Ah. And uh, because Mao really, really took full advantage of political identity. Mm. And so here, you know, uh, people look, you know, uh, we have many, many ethnic groups here. And so race become one of the most uh, pronounced um, way for them to divide the, the population. But in China, it's class. It's mm. really the, uh, the classic Marxist uh, way of divide people. So as soon as they took over power in 1949, they divided the entire Chinese um, people into two groups. One is called black class, another is called red class. Mm. So the black class are the people that are condemned as the enemy of the state. Back then, mostly they were the people that owned properties or land. So they acquired that label, that identity, which become part of themselves. It's become part of the DNA because they pass it down to their children and children's children. They all become the black class and enemy of the state. So during the Cultural Revolution, that's one of the ways they divide us. Kind of like being a Trump supporter today, I guess. Exactly. Because by then, nobody uh, owned any land anymore. Everything was confiscated. So how do you become uh, enemy of the state? By thinking the wrong thought and saying the wrong thing, exactly just like today, conservatives, the new are uh, the new black class. 
And so once you ended up in the wrong class, you are condemned as the threat to the country and you are supposed to be denounced, condemned, if necessary, uh, uh, eradicated. That's why the, the Red Guards went after those people who are condemned as um, um, black class. The first one they went after were their teachers and their principals. And as soon after the Cultural Revolution started, the Red Guards went after the teacher and the first teacher who uh, was killed by the Red Guards were a principal of a middle school, middle girls school in Beijing. A bunch of teenage girls killed their principal. And that was the only first, many more to come. At the end of the Cultural Revolution, some 20 million people died. And that's yeah, it's, a, it's a sickening. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, that's the only part of it. And then everything else that we, we, we uh, witness today. And uh, so free speech. In China, there's no free speech ever after the uh, communists took over. But during the Cultural Revolution, it's not even free speech. Silence is violence. If you don't openly show your enthusiasm in the revolution, you're considered black class. You might be condemned and you might be uh, imprisoned. So violence, when I heard silence is violence, I said, oh my God, that is exactly what happened to us during the Cultural Revolution. And speech become weaponized. If you say the wrong thing, even though it's just sleep of tongue, you will be condemned as counter-revolutionary. To be a counter-revolutionary is like an equivalent today's racist, um, bigot, and extremist. And that is a, a, a label that fits everyone. Everyone is a one-size-fits-all, like a racist. A black conservative can be a racist, right, today. Same thing. That was the counter-revolutionary. A dreadful label. Once you have that hat on you, you're doomed. Not just you, the whole yeah. family. So do you have any doubt that it, as they gain power in the U.S., if they do, that eventually it will get to the, the killing point? Absolutely. I have no doubt. We are almost there. And the 2020 gave us an idea how bad it can be, how quickly, that's the thing, how quickly it can turn into violence. And people don't, don't think that will never happen to us. It will, if we don't stop it. Absolutely, it will happen to us. And how should we stop it? What is, in your estimation, what, are the, what, what works against this? Well, first, let me ask you, why do they want to divide, to create envy between people or to divide the country? Uh, and then and once you answer that, how do we stop it? Yeah, people will say, why? Why are they, why are they doing that? Why? Mm -hmm. Why Mao did that? That is a good question, right? Why Mao was crazy to, uh, enough to launch a revolution against his own party, against his own institutions? Power. The reason he launched the Cultural Revolution was because he felt that he lost control of his own party and he lost control of his own government. That's why he wanted to burn everything down to the ground and build back better. better. Oh, yeah, wow. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Build back according to his own image, power. 
this is exactly what's happening here. Why they do all this division? Why they create all this chaos? Destroying the country, oh. destroying the economy, destroying our energy, destroying everything, the family. And then, and then they say, why? Why do they want to destroy it? That's how they get power. And wow. they will do anything that will help them to get power. And so I will say, that's the most important thing for people to understand. And how do we fight back? And um, I will say, the first, the most important thing is to understand, right? You yeah. can't fight back something you don't understand. And a lot of people, I'm talking about conservatives, still don't understand what we're dealing with. Mm -hmm. Don't you agree? Yes, I do. Because you still think that, oh, we, we can do better in the next election. or, or Yes, we, yeah. It's, it's, it, they're not going to be another election. I know. That's exactly <laughs> the problem. Exactly the problem that people still don't understand. So yeah. that's why I think the most important thing is to understand first. Knowing your enemy, knowing their goal. And then the next thing is to expose. That's exactly what we're doing here, right? To help mm -hmm. people to understand, to expose. And, uh, and then hopefully people will share the information with um, within their circle of influence. And then we, were, we have to resist. We have to resist at every level and, uh, and we have to get organized. Yeah. So we have to get organized and we have to, and I think too many people just focused on the uh, presidential election, but I believe, I'm sure you agree with me, at all, everything should happen in the local level. Mm -hmm. And so- It's very important, yeah. Very, very important. We can, actually, I think you can have the White House, the Supreme Court and the Congress and still losing the war because yes. if we don't have total control of the school board, school board, my God, is so, so, so important. If we don't have control of the local um, uh, government, we're not going to win the war. So I, I think that uh, that's what I have been doing because in Virginia, we have election this year and many of them, the uh, uh, school board, the uh, local um, board of supervisors and the state election. We have been focusing on, I personally have been focusing on supporting the candidates. Only when we take the local, uh, uh, the power from local level and the state level and we can really turn things around. So let's switch gears for a minute. We have a big military audience and the service academies have been heavily attacked. In fact, it came out recently that they have, uh, what do they call it? Uh, when you have so Soviet officer, political officers walking around with the military officers, uh, commissars or whatever. Commissars. They, have those, they have those now at the Air Force Academy, for instance. The Air Force yes. Academy has a DEI or diversity, equity, mm -hmm. inclusion, minor, major, you mm -hmm. know, so um, it's infiltrated, it's infected, it's infested with Marxists. And uh, tell our cadets, young cadets that may be listening, why DEI is not what it seems to be. Yeah, I think, first of all, we should push out this information to people. When you hear DEI, you should immediately think about communism. Mm -hmm. DEI is Marxist, is communist. Okay, so oh, it's just repackaged. Repackage mm -hmm. it for American consumption. Mm -hmm. Okay, diversity. Here, 
they only talk about the diversity of color. They are not talking about diversity of ideas. Political thought, so, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's one thought by different uh, people of different colors. That's all it's about. And equity, I just can't believe the term equity was accepted by Americans without really understanding. That is a Marxist term. That is absolutely a Marxist term. Equality means you know, equality of opportunity. That's American ideal. Mm -hmm. That is what makes America so great. Equity is communist. That means we are all the same. And the, so, the outcome is the same. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, all, it's all the same that, uh, um, and that's socialism, right? If you mm -hmm. work hard, if you don't work hard, it's the same. And yeah. so it, 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 it actually, it's not the same. And you think that it's the same? No. There is a, in the communist China, after the overthrow of the old system, they replace with the new system. That means we're all equally oppressed, equally poor, equally miserable, except the new ruling class. Yes. So that's equity. And the inclusion is include only what they like. So this whole thing, DEI is communist. And that's what people that we should help people to really uh, get the idea that automatically they equate and the, uh, DEI to communism. And so, well, I was going to say that, you know, communism when it, in form is essentially an oligarchy where you have an elite class that runs everybody else. Everybody else enjoys communism. They yeah. really get to enjoy communism. Exactly. <laughs> but the, the communism is different, only that it's very deceptive. They use beautiful terms. And then they say it's for your own good. We're doing this is for your own good, for the, the equity they achieve. is not for, everybody lift for, everybody. For your health, your security, everything. Yeah. Right? Let's push everyone down. And the, the, uh, I would say communism has nothing to do with uh, sharing uh, or, or uh, uh, um, redistribution of wealth. It is all about control. All about control and most of all, control of people's mind. And so that is uh, the commissar is absolutely, um, the DEI officer equals commissar. In Chinese institutions, especially in the military, the commissar has the final say and not the military officer. And that's coming, it's just absolutely frightening. It's coming to um, our military. And eventually the commissar, the DEI officer will decide, will have the, uh, the last decision over the military because that is the goal. That's why they put it there. And in the uh, Chinese military, the, uh, the commissar go to the lowest level, not just um, a high level, very low, like a level of uh, the, uh, the unit called like the Lian. Pl platoon or a squad, yeah. yeah. Uh, like about 80 people. I don't mm -hmm. know the, uh, the translation. Yeah. Into, mm -hmm. yeah, they have commissar. Mm -hmm. Every level it's been controlled by political officers. So how should we fight back against this in the military and expose it? Do you have any ideas? I know it's not your area, but... I think it's the same thing. You, mm -hmm. Basically, you have to expose it and educate people. And uh, that is, uh, yeah, it's not really my expertise. Mm -hmm. And we can't elect the, uh, the, uh, um, the officers, right? Yeah. So that, mm -hmm. I think, is uh, really 
um, we have to change the culture. We have to take back the uh, the federal government. Yeah, that's that's how you make change. But before we do that, if we take back of the school board and the school, and we started to uh, um, the uh, the education of uh, real patriotism, the education of our constitution, then we can create the future generation that will question question those uh, indoctrination in, in the higher level, in the military, for example. Yeah. Shu, is anything else you want our audience to know? I'm sorry? Anything else you want people to know? Um, well, read my book. Okay. okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's coming out in October. The title is uh, Mouse America, A Survivor's Warning. And in it, and I uh, listed all the parallels to help people understand what's going on in today's America is really history being repeated. And the goal is exactly the same as uh, what happened in the uh, Cultural Revolution, is people want to destroy the society in order to get absolute power. So we yeah. have to awaken to the fact. And then I only, only then can we really fight back. Shi, thank you so much for your time. We'll have you back. Thank you so much. Boy, fascinating and scary interview. Yeah, she's fantastic. I want to have her back on a regular basis uh, for our Georgia audience and our global audience because her insight is invaluable. Right yep. now. So. The discussion of DEI was uh, particularly apt for Georgia because in many cases um, we've seen, you know, um, uh, the critical race theory be outlawed, but then they sneak in DEI saying, oh, well, this is different. It's a, it's a different thing. DEI, no, it's SEL, yeah. whatever they want to call it. Yep. It's all the same. So, wow, what a great show, Bill. Thank you for all your work behind the scenes. And uh, please, I'm going to ask our audience to sign up for our no-ad subscriptions. We're bringing you the highest quality content out there, and we really need your support. It's expensive. Please go to the top right's subscribe for no ads and you'll get access to our global coverage across 13 websites around the world with no ads no pop-up ads on your phone just straight news um thank you very much bill do you got anything else no that's it we're ready to we're ready to uh to move on and we will uh, we'll see you again on this coming wednesday right uh, chris gleason's going to join us wednesdays for some breaking information on someone you all know so oh, uh, boy we will see you Wednesday night at 7 o'clock.